all-sustaining God, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, for we cannot live by bread alone, but need every word that comes from your mouth. For all scripture is breathed out by you for our benefit. So teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us that we may be complete and equipped for every good work in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of the passions. These are also known as the seven deadly sins. Um, They were originally called the passions because a passion is something that possesses you. It takes you over. Last week we looked at gluttony. Tonight we're going to look at the all-favorite, lust. I know, a lot of you would have stayed home if you knew. (laughs) The passions. What are the passions? The passions, we usually in our culture, we use passion to refer to something that I'm really into. Uh, But... Theologically speaking, the sinful passions are things that are really into you. In fact, they get into you and take over you. That's a passion. They render us passive, which is what passion means. It means to undergo something, usually suffering. The sins take hold of us and they become passions and they run and control us so that we lose our self-control and our self-direction. The devil is desirous of us. First Peter 5, 8 says that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So the passions you may remember, we are defining as um, eight cracks in the soul that can be opened up and exploited. And it's the job of demons to do that to us. If you don't believe that there are spirits out there seeking to harm your union with Christ and bring you down, you are ready for a fall. Do not be duped by our materialistic society. There is more than meets the eye. And the passions are going to remind us of this. So, how do these passions possess us? Um, First, they come to us as thoughts. Then we wrestle with them, and when we give them our consent, we basically say, yeah, I like that thought. We sin. That's the sin. We give it our consent. It now enters into us. The passions cannot get into you without your consent. So then they get in, and then they master us. They tell us what to do. They direct us. So we are then in captivity. This is how James describes it in different language. James chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Each person is tempted when he is, one, lured and enticed. That's the thought. Lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, second, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That's when I give my consent to the thought it then conceives. You understand the Bible's graphic language about sin? It's very sexual. Then, it gives birth to sin. Then, sin, when it is fully grown, third, brings forth death. And that's the captivity. A passion is meant to kill us, meant to render us completely severed from God and incapable of exercising the imago Dei, the image of God within us, which is a being of self-rule and directing our will to God. The passions will hinder you from that. They will dehumanize us, making us like the brute beasts. (laughs) This is dangerous ground. It's kind of scary to be talking about these things so openly. What we need is mercy. We need 
Christ's mercy to heal these eight cracks. And that is what we're after. We're not after condemning people. And if, if, if I start pointing little sensitive spots in your lives, trust me, uh, that's the spirit, okay? I'm not trying to do that. What we're after is letting those cracks become evident so that we can come to the physician and ask for his mercy to heal us. As Jesus said in Matthew 9, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Then he told the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Who needs to be healed? The sick. What do they need? They need mercy. And that's what we're after. Okay, so last week we looked at gluttony. Remember, gluttony is not how much we eat, it's why we eat. Gluttony is basically a distraction. It's a way of seeking comfort without having to confront the deeper emptiness within us. Tonight, we look at the second passion, lust. And in the ancient writers, um, the ancient writers of the third, fourth century, excuse me, uh, were so wise in putting gluttony first. Remember, we called that the gateway passion to the other passions. Uh, lust follows next, and it's quite um, logical and it's quite important to see that gluttony gives way to lust. When we uh, become distracted eaters, we become distracted seekers. The emptiness that we can't fill with gluttony will then be pursued through the senses and through other uh, fantasies of the mind. And just to put this really clear, uh, where does a lot of lustful action happen? Where there's a lot of alcohol or food? Parties, festivals, um, especially like, you know, the, the big secular concert festivals, Woodstock back in the day, right? These big fests where there's gluttony, there's always lust. This is partly why gluttony was put first, to teach us to guard ourselves at the beginning. Okay, so uh, the passion of lust. (laughs) This was so much fun, by the way, to study, and I'm being totally sarcastic, because I'm going the whole time like, man, what do a lot of people want to do with this? And and, and here, there are problems with lust, because a lot of us go into a subject like, that's not me, or, oh, that's me, and I feel so much shame, I don't even want to hear about it. Or we just get embarrassed thinking about the fact that things exist, like pornography, or um, maybe we've done something, we just feel this overwhelming sense of shame, or we get this sense of, oh, this is not a female problem, this is a male problem, or we think, oh, this is limited to sex. Sex isn't really something I'm lured to. Well, guess what, friends? We can lust after other things, too. So I'm going to try to walk us through this in a way that kind of hits all of us to some degree. Um, So the passion of lust, I want to give us four clarifications or four ways to see what lust is. The first is that lust is an exchange for, uh, it's an exchange from the glory of God for the glory of creation. We exchange the glory of God for the glory of creation. Okay, we were born to yearn for and desire God, but lust teaches us to desire something lesser and lower instead, and the Bible describes it as an exchange. Paul, picking up on language used throughout the Old Testament about the golden calf episode, um, says this in Romans chapter 1. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Pornography and a lot of pagan uh, idolatry was revolving around sexual images. 
but not just man, birds and animals and creeping things. There's an exchange. We are getting a bad end of a bargain in lust. Second, lust is a weakening of our desires. I fall into lust when I stop seeking my deepest and strongest desires. Does that startle you? Because I think we often, especially when we're thinking about the teenagers, we're like, uh, whoa, dude, your desires are way too strong. Tone it down. But actually, C.S. Lewis describes the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but our desires are too weak. So we exchange the great desire for weaker desires. Here's how he puts it in his great sermon called The Weight of Glory. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. For we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Ouch. And there is where lust lies. We seek cheap, easy pleasure. Third, lust is a disordered and diminished desire to be united with beauty. Disordered, meaning that our desires are now going for the wrong kind of beauty, and diminished, because rather than desiring the beauty of God, we're desiring a lesser beauty, as you're already seeing unfold. It is a disordered and diminished desire to be united with beauty. Because here's what happens to the human soul. We see beauty and we want to be part of the beauty. We do not casually see beauty. We want it in us. We want it to become part of us. There's this yearning for more than what we're seeing. That's why we snap photos of a sunset or share it with others or pause and try to soak in the moments because we cannot just be content with seeing. For um, I can, There's probably hundreds of better examples, but this one came to my mind. Um, the apple pie. You see someone who made a really, really good apple pie, and it's beautiful. Are you really content looking at it? Okay, maybe you'll smell it too. Are you satisfied yet? Maybe you'll even touch it. Satisfied yet? You are not satisfied until that apple pie gets inside of you. We desire to be united to the beautiful. But lust is a disordered and diminished desire to be united to the beautiful. C.S. Lewis, in his same sermon, put it like this. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. And then fourth picture of lust. Lust is an obsession over a fantasy. Lust is an obsession over a fantasy. 
This means that it, it does include sex. And that's a huge one because we, for our fallen condition, have a very sensitive desire to sexual things. But you can have an obsessive fantasy about more than sex. For some, it can be clothing, cars, careers, home decor, home improvement. For example, you're looking through a magazine. It doesn't have to be one of scantily clad people. It could be one of gorgeous homes. And then all of a sudden, you start fantasizing about what your home could look like and how, oh, I could be hospitable only if we upgraded or improved this. And then it becomes this fantasy, like my life will be happy when this is fixed. And then it becomes this obsession. You can't stop looking at pictures and, and planning and plotting and, and trying to redivert funds that should maybe go elsewhere into this. And this is lust. It's lust for another thing in another way than we're usually used to hearing. Um, here's how lust works. Like the passions, they come to us thought, as thoughts. But for lust, it comes to us as an image. And when it presents the image to us, whether it's that improvement, that outfit, that image of yourself or, or sexual images, when the image comes to you, you have a choice just like Israel did throughout the Old Testament. Will you bow down to the image or will you not? Bowing down to the image means giving yourself over to it. Lust is very much at the core of idolatry. It comes to us as an image. We choose whether we bow down to it. When we do choose to bow down to it, the image morphs into a fantasy. We take pleasure in the idea. We start daydreaming about the idea. The idea doesn't leave us. It goes with us. And then fantasy, when entertained often enough, becomes obsession. And that is when you are in the hold of a passion. What is the problem with lust? Why is this a big deal? <laughs> well, you already hear, don't you? Do you want something less than the eternal God? Do you want something mortal? If we become like what we worship, do you want to stay mortal and corrupt? Or do you want to become immortal and like God? Do you want to live in captivity or do you want to be free? Do you want to be in control of your thoughts and your desires? Or do you want other forces to control your thoughts and desires? It matters immensely that we control this passion of lust. But here are some other specific reasons to avoid lust. Um, or some of the problems right now with lust. And this, is, this one's very obvious. Lust is a cultural pandemic. It is. I mean, we're, we're, we talk about COVID as a pandemic, but lust has been far more rampant and contagious for far longer than COVID. We are in a culture, the world has not seen a culture so paganized in terms of sex and lust. We haven't seen this since the pagan Roman Empire. When Christianity took hold in the world, we haven't seen what we've seen today since then. Like that we are closer to the early church, first and second century now than we've ever been. And it's actually an interesting concept. And we might have to rethink how to be church in a world that's looking more like Rome than it is looking like America. It, it is a pandemic. And what I mean by this is think, think of our view of sex. Um, we believe that sexual pleasure belongs in marriage or you don't enjoy it at all. It's in the confines of marriage. That's the Christian view. That's the biblical worldview. But culture hears that and they get outraged. 
Are you kidding me? That is dangerous teaching. It's not just, we don't like that, or that's a little stuffy. It's a little too Victorian. It's, it, they've gone past that. From calling us prudes to now calling us basically dangerous and harmful to human flourishing. Because what culture says is that sexual expression is our way to health. It's our way to growth. It's our way to discover who we are. The world teaches us that it's completely normal to give in to desires, and it's healthy. In fact, resisting and repressing our desires can be so-called harmful to our development. This, brothers and sisters, as Christians, and your position on this issue is going to be potentially dangerous in the coming decades. The culture has quickly gone from tolerant to intolerant toward Christians. And this is one of the most hated parts of what we believe. Because the world sees us as hindering human growth. (laughs) It's going to be fun. Uh, The other problem, lust. Lust is, second, a poor pathway to self-discovery. That's a very poor pathway to self-discovery. Um... This is why the culture gives so much vent to lust. Because we, we as a culture, not Christians, hopefully, um, we as a culture believe that you will discover yourself when you give vent to your lust. Like, this is helping you discover yourself. So if you follow your feelings of lust, you will free your true self. It needs to come out through pleasure and excitement. That's what you do. So now you've, you've seen this, and this is obvious when I say it. Um, now what's happening is sexuality is determining our identity. Because if sexual relationships are a way to self-discovery, then it's very natural to make the next step that we identify with our sexual orientations and feelings. In the Bible, it's a little different. Sex is two people finding together one new identity. It's not, as the world wants to make us sound, the man dominating the woman and making her identity get absorbed into his identity. That's just terrible theology, and that's not what Christians believe. It's two equal people finding a new identity together. No one has to become the other person. You're becoming a third, a new person. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, verse 31. He's quoting Genesis here, Genesis chapter 2. He says in Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so two becoming one flesh. In the world, though, what we're seeing is sex is one becoming oneself. For Christians, sex is two becoming one. In the world, it's one becoming oneself, which is not going to hold up in a relationship in any way. And here's, here's the problem. The world is seeking from sexual relationships something that only Christ can give us. And this is why relationships are breaking apart. This is why people have multiple partners throughout their life. Because you cannot keep a relationship going if you're expecting the other person to be your God-given definition of self-discovery and identity. It doesn't hold up. Third problem. 
is that lust makes Christians hypocritical. I couldn't avoid this. I had to get this in here somehow because I felt like it was too important to ignore. So very briefly, we're so quick to condemn people's sexual orientation or same-sex marriage and whatever. Like We're very quick to condemn those things. And I cringe because we are very slow to address the pandemic within our own churches called pornography. How can the world take us seriously if we're going to cherry-pick sexual sins while Christians on their own are divorcing like crazy and are privately sucked into this pornographic world? We have no business telling the world how to sexually live if we cannot rid the passion of lust from our own midst. And fourth problem with lust. Lust has eight evil daughters. Lust has eight evil daughters. Um, I first saw this in Thomas Aquinas, but I found out later that he actually borrowed it from Gregory the Great, who was one of the early guys in the, I think, the 5th century. Yeah, the 5th century. Anyways, that doesn't matter. Uh, Here's the eight daughters of lust. Remember I said gluttony? uh, We saw John of Sinai showed us, like, all these things that happen when we become gluttonous. It gives birth to all these other sins. Lust gives birth to other sins in our life, too. And remember, this doesn't have to—I gave just now a lot of sexual examples, but lust is not necessarily sexual. It's the obsession of a fantasy. And, And when we get like this, these eight daughters will be birthed into our lives. First, blindness of mind. Lust blinds our mind. Second, blindness, I'm sorry, uh, rashness and inconsiderateness. I think of the word irritable. Um, Third, thoughtlessness, kind of just act impulsively. Fourth, inconstancy in beliefs and desires. You're going to be like Paul in Romans 7. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. There's like these two desires raging in me. Well, you're going to be volatile in what you desire and go for. Fifth, self-love. Sixth, naturally comes after that, hatred of God. Seventh, naturally, love of the world. And eighth, all of this culminates with a despair of a future world. You despair about heaven. Because, well, it doesn't sound that... When you live a life full of stimulating oneself with fantasies, heaven suddenly sounds so boring and drab and cold and undesirous. You mean we're going to be with God the whole time? Tell me, please, that there's going to be some excitement. That's the attitude that's developed when the passion of lust has us in captivity. This is bleak. This is dark. This is sad. But there's hope. We don't have to succumb like the world. We don't have to feel like this is inevitable. We have power over lust in Christ. Amen? God heals the passion of lust with the dispassion of purity. Remember, the passions are countered by the dispassions. To be dispassionate does not mean I'm I'm apathetic and indifferent to everything. Oh man, whatever you do, you do. Um, Dispassionate means the passions have no effect on you. They move through you like ghosts. That's what it means to be dispassionate. A better way to put it is you are wholesome and content in Christ. None of these things can move me to somewhat use Paul's quote in a somewhat appropriate way. Um, Yes, so the God heals the passion of lust with the dispassion or virtue, another way to look at it, the virtue of purity. Now, 
It was so hard to come up with the right virtue and word to explain what we want to go after. Because on one hand, chastity is the traditional word, but chastity doesn't quite work because the early, early Christians actually had a very suspicious view on all sex, including marital sex. And that was not exactly a healthy view for them either. In fact, some guys like Gregory of Nyssa actually just stopped living with his wife altogether because he just thought it wasn't good best for a spiritual soul. And I'm like, well, that's a little suspect. But, um, so chastity is kind of chastity implies like absolutely no sex even married and that was actually taught by some of the early christians um yeah no um so i'm not going with chastity but interestingly the latin root of chastity means moral purity it didn't actually originally at least in latin it didn't refer to sexual purity moral purity which then goes to the word let's just use the word purity now i do have one hesitation so just to clear the air before we go any further um purity sometimes, at least in youth culture especially, if you grew up in this era, then you'll know what I mean. It kind of has this like cringy feel because it's like, oh no, 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 we must save ourselves from marriage, be pure. And so it kind of just seems like this really like, and by the way, I'm not mocking that idea at all. I went by that idea. But um, it kind of comes with this this baggage, I guess, these like preconceived ideas. What I'm after when I say God is going to heal us with the dispassion or the virtue of purity is more like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's no seeing God with the passion of lust. Why? Because lust hijacks our imaginations with fantasies. That's why you can't see God unless we're pure in heart. And this is the idea of being pure in heart. Purity, by the way, means singleness. It doesn't mean unspotted. It means that there's a singleness. There's a one direction. You're not divided and distracted. The pure in heart. Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's purity of heart. One desire, and I'm going after that, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to be united in, with the beauty of the Lord. And thank you, Sandy, for singing Delight in the Lord. That song works very perfectly with that idea. By the way, I did not play it last week, just so you know. I know, it's some, it was another re- reason, but... Um, by the way, she learned a very hard song. I'm very impressed. It's a weird time signature, and then usually worship leaders play the same four chords so they don't have to think about the music. They can lead worship. This is one that bucks the trend totally, and she, yeah, good job, Sandy. Um, I look forward to leading that one when it's my turn next. I love that song so much. Um, okay, anyways, back to where we are. Pure in heart. How do we become, or better put, better question is what What does pure in heart look like? What does pure in heart look like? I'm going to give us three, I think it's three, give us three, yeah, three illustrations about being pure in heart. Number one, and this is, this is, yeah, this is our kind of application coming to a land here. You guys know my landings though. Just, it just, it's like, ding, put your seatbelt on, it'll be a while. Um, (laughs) Pure in heart want to be free from lust. The pure in heart want to be free from lust. Augustine of Hippo, that great church theologian from way back, 
is infamous. He's famous for good things, but he's infamous for this one prayer in his youth where he said, Lord, give me chastity and self-restraint, but not just yet. And in that, he's capturing what anyone who has been under the passion of lust understands. There is a certain desire to hold on. You can't imagine letting go of your lust. You can't imagine who you'll be or what you'll do without it. And so you want desperately to be free. It's a misery. You want to be free, but you really don't know how to let go. Uh, he, Augustine then, he said, he, he commenting, right after he says that in his confessions, he then says, he's talking to God, For I was afraid that you, Lord, would quickly heed my prayer and that you would quickly cure me. I was afraid that I would actually be free. So if we want to be pure in heart and free from lust, we have to want it. Not just say, I'm supposed to be. It must be wanted. Which means you have to exercise your free will. You cannot sit around and wait for God to deliver you through some circumstance or just it's going to get old one day. That's not how slavery works. That's not how the passions work. You have to choose to do what God tells you to do and to use the weapons he's given us to fight against lust. We have to want it, which then leads us to second. The pure in heart flee from all forms of lust. The pure in heart flee from all forms of lust. (laughs) The demon of lust, remember how I said um, a lot of the early uh, desert fathers were writing about the passions as if they're also demons. There's the demon of this and that. Um, the demon of lust. Boy, what a powerful image. He's, like a, he's leading a military. And the demon of lust has recruited a massive army. He's recruited magazines. He's recruited novels. He's recruited movies. He's recruited, recu- recruited music. He's recruited advertisements, social media the internet. He has a phenomenally powerful army at his disposal. That is why the pure in heart must flee all forms of lust. You're not going to, you're not going to wade into the heart of this army victorious. This isn't one you brashly going, I can handle it all. Bring it on. I can do all movies with sexual scenes and look at any kind of magazine and have absolutely no filter on You need to not confront this one head on. You flee the forms of lust because the demon has recruited a huge army. An example is Genesis chapter 39. And it starts, you guys know this one. It's, it's Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. Genesis 39 verse 7, we see that Joseph was handsome. And it says, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. She has imitated this image, or uh, entertained this image, right? She's bowed down to this idea of lying with Joseph. And so now it's become a fantasy. She's thinking about it. And now it's becoming a possession, an obsession. She's got to now confront Joseph and get him in her bed. And then in verse 10, it says that she spoke to Joseph this way, day after day. I mean, yeah, good for you, Joseph. You resisted a woman the first time. You're like, who are you? Get away. That's not hard. The day after day, when suddenly it just seems like, oh, no one's around. Who's going to know? It's after, it's when the image continually bombards the mind and you have to choose over and over. Am I going to bow down to this or am I going to push it out? Am I going to break the idol? 
That continual choice, that's what the demons are banking on, is that you will eventually, all they need is one chance. They will, they will roll that lottery ticket a million times. They just need you to bite the bait once. Day after day. But he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. We must throw off from ourselves such garments that lust has grasped. So the demon of lust is in so many areas of our common lives. Be careful what mediums the demon of lust is now grabbing onto you. And when you sense it, wiggle out of that garment and flee. Here's what Ambrose of Milan, he's, by the way, the guy that brought Constantine to Christ. He said, therefore, Joseph stripped off his garment and cast off the sin. He left behind the clothing by which he was held and fled away, stripped to be sure, but not naked because he was covered by the better covering of modesty, or we could say of virtue, of purity. Yes, a person is not naked unless guilt has made them naked. I like that. So shed it. Whatever it is in your life that is enticing, if it's, if it's what is it called, Southern Living, or I don't know, the one that Joanne Gaines or whoever it is, you know, if, if that's your thing, ladies, <laughs> men, you got your other things, um, cast off the garment. Better to run naked but clothed in purity than to be weighed down by the shackles of Potiphar's wife's grip. Number three, the pure in heart fight the fantasies of lust. So what this means is we don't go head on into the hotbed. We're not going to go running into a pornographic film and say, stop filming. Um, That might be some people's call, but that's not necessarily what you're being told to do. We've been given weapons to defend ourselves. Do not stop using them. Do not stop fighting the fantasies of lust that are coming into our minds. King David was a giant slayer. He was a heroic warrior. Saul put him in the most difficult battles and he couldn't die. David could fight off any enemy. But one got him. The demon of lust got him through Bathsheba. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's just the first two verses is all I'm going to read. 2 Samuel 11 In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, kings like David. David sent Joab instead, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David stopped his vigil against the demons and the passions. He stopped his vigil. He stopped watching. And it happened late one afternoon. Lazy days. 
just late one afternoon, he's finally doing something. That's just how I imagine it. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Cool. There it is. Our souls yearn for beauty. But David is now going after a disordered and diminished beauty. The David who wrote Psalm 27 and said, One thing have I desired, and that will I seek, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life, is now reorienting and diminishing that desire for this beauty. Because David has stopped fighting the fantasies. You're laying on the couch. You're bored. You have no mission. You have no aim in life anymore. You're no longer living to what God's called you to be or do. And now, well, yeah, the fantasies are going to flood in. Because there is no easier city to break in than a life and a mind without activity. It's like a city without walls. And the lust can just come right in and say, you don't know what you should do. You know what you need in your life? You know what would make you just more awesome? You know what spruce things up around here? Jerome, back in the second century, said, Be always busy in doing something good so that the devil may find you ever occupied. Jerome saying, Just put out a no vacancy sign by immense seeking of God. But idleness says lots of vacancy here. Fantasies are conquered by reorienting our imaginations. So if lust enters our minds as an image and then we bow down to it and it becomes a fantasy, what's happening is it has hijacked our imaginations. Our imaginations belong to the gospel. They belong to Christ. Paul, what is it, 2 Corinthians 9, I want to say? I'm just remembering this now. It says to take every thought captive or to hold that. Imaginations of the heart are up to us. Um, Evagrius, the solitary, said that the temptation of lust need not be permanent for intense prayer. A very frugal diet, that's fasting. So prayer, fasting, together with vigils, which for him meant staying up all night, but for most people that are weaker like me, <laughs> meant um, just keeping yourself attentive to what is happening in the soul. Uh, so intense prayer, frugal diet, together with vigils and the development of spiritual contemplation. That means when you're reading the Psalms or the scriptures, you're ingesting it and you're, 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 you're letting the mind rest upon God and his word. These drive lust away like a cloud. We've been given a means to fight. So Jerome would say, these are the things we need to, so that when the devil comes, he's like, ah, oh, man, he's too full for me. That's the goal. So we fight. So prayer, prayer, prayer. I remember one church father said something about the Psalms are the cure to lust. I don't remember who said that, and I wish I remember that. Um, that was interesting, the Psalms. Prayer, Fasting, because if we can't say no to the stomach, we can't say no to Satan. We can't say no to any of these other stronger passions. Um, watching, continual watchfulness and spiritual contemplation. Just setting our hearts. This is David saying, one thing I desire and that will I seek to see the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. That's spiritual contemplation. That's beholding the glory and the beauty of Christ every day. 
This is how we show the devil we're occupied. This is how we fight against the fantasies of the mind by putting new fantasies in through prayer and fasting and vigil and scriptural meditation. Okay, so lust is a diminished and distorted desire to be united with beauty. Only the beauty of Christ, however, returns the union we seek. We often want to absorb beauty into us. But when we go to Christ, he says, oh, you can absorb me, but I'm going to absorb you too, and we're going to become one. Perfect unity. This is the actual beauty we're striving for. And so Augustine said, the caresses of wanton, unrestrained men are desirous of a return of love. What are they actually looking for? They're not looking just to consume. There's an emptiness that wants to be hugged back. So he continues, There is nothing more caressing than your love, Lord, nor is anything more loved more healthfully than your truth, which is beautiful and bright above all things. We are desiring machines, and it's good. But don't sell it short for the glory and beauty of being united with God. Lord, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.